and we're in the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn, we are in Exodus 26 today. We jump in. Tenting. I don't know. We saw last week, this is tenting too. That means we've started something and we're going to hopefully get into that today and finish this piece in the scriptures. But We've seen Exodus, right? What we've looked at is this amazing truth that Exodus isn't just about deliverance through the Red Sea. Exodus is not just about, not just about the exodus of God's people from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the desert. Exodus is about God dwelling with his people. And I think, unfortunately, in today's world, that's gotten a bit of a short shrift, because we live in such a, an, an amazing algamation of confusion and informality in many ways, we don't even think what an amazing thing it is that we get to come before God. We think, oh, you know what? I, I see God in you and me and God's in my neighbor and God's in the tree and God's in everything. And so it's just this kind of flavor of, of informal, oh yeah, of course I'm close to God. Draw near to God. Come on, get close to him. The tragedy of that to me is that we can't understand the depth of what holiness is. Holiness has become this marker, you and me, for this idea that we're slowly working on ourselves to get good habits. I'm getting up earlier and earlier to read my Bible and pray. I'm doing good things for other people. I take good things, because those are good things that we like to do, that we aim to do, that are good. And we start to think, I'm more holy if I do them. So it's good for us to come to Exodus. And it's good for us to come to the mountain. And it's good for us to look at this word from God about what holiness is. Because it's amazing and huge that holiness is about location. I think of it almost like if you were in a nuclear reactor and you had a a, a nuclear reaction going on. Like if you got too close to that thing, you would disintegrate. Even if you're like far away where you can still see it, your eyes are starting to cloud over because the radons hitting your eyes would mean that your eyes stop working. To be in the presence of God is to die because you're not pure enough. You're not good enough. You're not able enough. And yet, so, so, so you see this start to, to, to happen, this wonder of do you understand how awesomely pure and different God is? Your God. We start to see it in Exodus. We start to see it when they won't go up the mountain because they're afraid. And, and, and then the reality of God saying, you know, I'm going to come and dwell with you. And then very specific instructions. We started last week, right? Of, of, this, of this tent that he's, he's going to dwell in. <laughs> and we saw just last week, the, the, he starts off, this is from God's lips telling Moses, and Moses is writing it down. And so what he starts with isn't the tent. What he starts with is what's going to be the single item in the most holy area. That's this Ark of the Covenant. The Ark that has the mercy seat over it single thing in this holy, holy place. And then one entrance into that in this little room that's going to be the whole tent. And there's just three items in this. And he went over two of them. We looked at it last week. The table of the presence. The bread of life. The priest would eat it once a week. 
The lampstand made of a single talent of gold is 90 pounds of gold that looks like this tree of, uh, of life there looking back to Eden with light coming out, the light of the world, right? These amazing images of a, of a coming Christ that is God dwelling with his people. You say, well, that's really cool. Now the people will see all this stuff. Well... Maybe there's some more imagery to be had. And, and thus we're in Exodus. He's going to talk today about, about really making this a separated off place. And, and I want to expose it to you, but I know as we do, I know that images that, and the, the detail is somewhat mind-numbing unless you're an architect or a construction guy. And the reality is, though, there's some things in here you should know. So look with me. The, the wonder of this is... This God's specific instructions for the covering, the veil, the altar, and I'm hoping it encourages you with the wonder that God is near to you. What an amazing gift it is. And how that changes how you're going to live this life. Okay, Exodus 26, let's look at it together. First, I gave you just a couple pictures because pictures are helpful. This is somebody's reproduction and they, they helpfully put it out. And you see this tent as we've been talking about. Is that tent there in the middle? But the whole thing around, the tent is only 15 by, by 45. It's a small little tent, really, less than 700 square feet. And, and then around it is a 75 by 150 foot sort of courtyard area to separate it out from the rest of the camp that would be gathered around. And there's an altar there, which is this hollow structure. They're going to kill and burn animals. And we're still, we're talking about that tent. And I put a picture in your bulletin this week. It's from the ESV Study Bible. I don't think they would mind to see this is the, the, the sort of pictorial representation of what this tent is. And we've talked about that Holy of Holies the furthest away. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And then we've talked about a couple pieces of furniture. And, and then today... God tells Moses about how to make it all put together. And it's really specific. So chapter 26, let's, let's go ahead and look at, uh, at verse 1. We'll, we'll save that for later, the covering. Okay. So moreover, God writes here. Moses writes from God. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Then he goes on. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. And so whenever you read these cubit idea, think a foot and a half. So you just multiply one and a half and you've got feet. So these curtains they're going to make for the tabernacle are 42 feet by six feet about. And there's going to be two sets of them. Five joined together, right, on each side. Then you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtains in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain. Fifty loops you shall make in the edge of the curtain that's in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold. And couple the curtains to the other with clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Okay, so you're interested in making sure that as you start to make this, this tabernacle, this is going to be a whole unit. We're talking about the whole. And he goes on. 
You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. That's interesting. There's one more curtain of goat's hair. And the length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits. The breadth of each curtain, four cubits. Now we're 45 feet by six feet. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves, six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent, like an entrance kind of idea. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that's the outermost in one set, 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that's in the outermost of the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze. Now it's not gold, it's bronze. Put the clasps into the loops and couple the first the tent together that may be a single hole. The part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, a cubit on one side, a cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and that side, to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. Okay. Some of you guys are going, why did I go to church today? 50 clasps of bronze, 50 clasps of turn. What, what, what are we doing? This is the tabernacle. This is the making of the tent, right? And again, unless you're an architect, you're like, well, I don't really care. Okay, so let me point out to you just a few things to take away. One, one I want you to see right away. This is, he's talking about making this tabernacle, and he's talking about four layers, right? You just talked about four layers on the tent. There's the very outest layer, that's goat skin. There's the second layer, that's, that's uh, leather, that's tanned ram skin. That's what we'd call leather, right? And then underneath it is, is goat hair, really common thing. And then, and then on the inside, something that, oh, wait a minute, isn't normal. Not what they would normally do. So don't miss that. A lot of times, well, that's kind of weird, and it's all old, and there's 50 things here, and 50 things there. Yeah, no, he's making it all together. He's making it one whole. He's giving very specific instructions. But there's something unusual, and that's what you would actually see when you came in. Because what you're going to see when you come in, right, if I have four layers, and I'm talking about the outer layer is the goat stuff, is the goat skin, which is really common. The, the next layer is, is tanned, tanned leather, which is common. And then the next layer is goat hair, which is not uncommon for the inside of a tent. But now we've got something extra special on the very inside. And that's all you would see. Because they're going to make sure that it goes all the way around. It's a little longer than the other one. So th- th- this inner layer isn't going to touch the ground, the earth. The, the goat skin will, the, the ram's leather will, they're all the same size. But this inner layer, wh- what is it again? It was verse 1, right? Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of twined linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Okay, very fine stuff. And, and, and then this, you shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them. Okay, I don't want you to miss this. This is like we're making this room, and it's easy to just kind of mind-numbingly go, yeah, they made a tent. No, wait, God himself is saying, I'm representing something that I want you to know. And so he makes this first inner room of this holy place that nobody's going to go into. And then he's going to make a second room that only the priests are going to go into. And, and, and outside of it are the people. So, so, and then when you come into that place, what are you going to see by the light 
of the menorah or the lampstand of creation, you're going to see cherubim. Well, I don't even know what cherubim are, Dex. (laughs) Think of them as angelic warriors. There's warriors all around looking, angelic beings as you come in to God's presence. And, 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 and inside there where God is are the two cherubim right on his very throne. Then he's in the middle of it. It's all this. Oh, what am I supposed to think? The heavens, right? This is Remarkable. So when the priests went into this tabernacle and tent, they had cherubim surrounding them, angels looking on, everything that's going on in the presence of these angelic beings. When they step in, this priest, and look, the curtain's full of the images of angels, this visual reminder that they're stepping into the earthly presence of heaven itself. Right, this invisible presence. And then, and then also this idea of connection between the most holy and the holy places because the cherubim, it's almost like now location-wise, right? You're walking to the angels and angels start to gather around and then the real angels are there on the throne. We forget the separation pieces, you know. We're so informal. I wonder, I wonder if... Do you remember the Garden of Eden? Do you remember when um, God was there with, with Adam and Eve and they, they were with him and we don't think, oh yeah, of course God was. No, God was holy and so they had to be holy and God's there. But then they fell and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so God says to them, remember what he did? He said, you're getting out of this garden. How could he make sure they were coming back? Well, remember, I'll, I'll put it up. Here it is. Is that ah, maybe it didn't make it up there. But what he did was he, he said in Genesis 3, he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He put the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, there was cherubim. And what they were doing was guarding Adam and Eve so they couldn't get to God and couldn't get to Eden. You don't get to come in. And so now as they would come in, the priests would, into this place of the heavens, what are they surrounded by? These warriors that are now watching as they're in the presence of God again. What's changed? What's going on? Because men have said, this is what's going on. As God himself has said, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to make a way that man can be with me. It's amazing. They're represented in this precious area and guarding it, and now they're guarding this entrance into God himself, and people get to come in. I guess you say, well, yeah, of course they did. No, 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 no. What, what I'm trying to get across to you is the depth of the wonder of what's happening here is something that is, is it's beyond what we ever could think, that we get to get in the presence of God himself. Wow. into a representation of heaven. Okay, there's more specific instructions and I'll read them through relatively quickly. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. And there shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So these are like little little things that would fit together so that they would hold together. And so they are. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. 
You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, and for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. You shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. There shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five for the frames in the other side of the tabernacle and bars for the frames of the side tabernacle, the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up to the frames shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that we have shown on the mountain. Okay. Again, if, you're, if your mind doesn't sort of wander in that, then boy, you're a good listener. Because it's like, well, there's five over here and five over here and eight there and it's over on the bottom of the tenons. And what is the tenon again? And what's the, 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 the tap? No, what's going on? Here's what's going on. God specifically tells him exactly what to do. He tells him how to make a tabernacle that will, that will separate out what's outside from what's inside and will be firm and strong and will have this symmetry going down on both sides with only one entrance. God lives on a dead-end street. There's one way in. What's that? That's the east. Really interesting, right? Because east was also the entrance to the Garden of Eden. East is also the entrance to the temple. East is where the sun rises. And so they'd come in to God, they would come in one way. And he's built this structure that he's at the center of it because that's this representation of the ark in the Holy of Holies and stretching out this way. And so this almost this hallway they would come in on and it's made with precious materials all the way down. Anything that's inside is gold. Anything that faces the earth is bronze. Special. And then, and then lined with it then are these cherubim on the walls that you come in. You don't see the goat's hair. You don't see the ram's hair that's protecting it from, from the elements. You see the cherubim looking at you as you come in. A precious, holy place of God. Really interesting. And he sets up this representation, this place of heaven, of Eden, of God with them. The angels gathered, humans close, priests entering the place of God. And not the Holy of Holies, but into the holy place, keeping the light going, eating bread in the presence of God. Amazing. They get this. Amazing. Okay, so this is this amazing place, right? Say, okay, that's great, Daxon. Most of the time you would think that the, the, these, this linen went on the inside and then these bars went and then the rest of it going out and so they would really see the cherubim and the angels gather around as they got this amazing truth of being in the presence of God. What do you get? I just want to leave that there for a minute. Do you get to come into the presence of God? Is it really amazing? 
It's not over yet, and there's more to read. So let's keep going. So we've talked about the curtain. He's made this barrier. He's made the tent where he's going to dwell with his people. And all the tribes gathered. He's right in the middle of the tabernacle is, right? There's four tribes on each side as they go all the way around. And then we have what's going to break off the holy place from the most holy place. The veil. God has specific instructions. Let's go. So you shall make the veil, verse 31, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. So now, now finally is the instructions, the real instructions, right? So what I want you to do is I want you to put up a barrier and you're going to put the ark behind the barrier. You know, the, the law underneath the throne and then this mercy seat on top are going to sprinkle blood and the cherubim looking at it and I'm going to speak from right there. And you put that alone in that room. The veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil. The lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. You shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And, and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold and the hook shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Okay. Did you, did you catch that? Again, it seems like nothing. Our eyes skim over this stuff. We start to, to not think about it. But, but this reality is there's a screen keeping the courtyard from the tent. The courtyard, which already has a lot of space to keep the people out towards this most holy place that's here. But they have this screen before you can even come into the tent. And that's sitting there on bases of bronze. That's like the meeting of earth, right? And, and this screen made of this colored linen, that's there. But the really interesting and set-apart thing is the veil. A long single room becomes two rooms by the veil. The veil with the, that has, what, what's on the veil? Cherubim, again. So, so now you come in. The priest comes in, and he comes through a, a screen that doesn't have anything on it. It's, it's just, a, but he, it's a separation. He comes into this room, and now there's cherubim on the walls. And he's looking in front of him at an, a veil that also has these cherubim on it. And behind it, almost transparent, you can see that there, there's something there. What is it? It's the throne of God. Three hundred and sixty-four days a year. This is a barrier because God's too holy for you to go get close to Him like that. I mean, one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right? The priest would make atonement by sprinkling blood on things, and then he's going to go in and 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 with a bit of trembling if he does it wrong, because if he's not holy, he dies. And the table and the lampstand is outside. There are things you need to do to keep them going all the time. But inside, there's nothing except this one holy thing. The veil. Well, that represents something interesting, right? So, well, yeah, I've heard about, what is that again? Okay, well, there's Hebrews. Let's look at that. Therefore, brothers, since we 
have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Goes on to say, let us draw near at full confidence. What's the deal? Yeah, the veil. The veil that, 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 that separates God from man, that separates it because of our lack of holiness, our lack of purity, our lack of ability to be so close to God, that Jesus has made a way into that, right? He, he's not, that's not saying when he says uh, through the curtain, that is through his flesh. His flesh is not the curtain. His flesh is the way. That's the antecedent thing it's referring to. His flesh is the way through it. The flesh of Jesus. What's the flesh of Jesus? That makes, let, allows me to be close to God. And by the way, the flesh of Jesus that allows me to be close to God. What does that mean the thing the way isn't? Well, me and my personal holiness me and anything I've ever done thinking this will get me in close to God. Me and my weird thinking that somehow says when I'm doing good, I'm closer to God. And when I'm doing bad, I'm further from God. Because the reality is for you and me, we're all impure. If anybody would say, oh, I'm good enough to go cruising in to God's presence, what do you think would happen? Here, have a nice drink of hydrochloric acid. Because that pure hydrochloric acid is going to eat right through your bones. But I've been a pretty good person. I took some extra stomach acid deleter today. Prilosec. <laughs> that doesn't work. Nothing you do works because it's too strong. It's too holy. It's too amazing. You can't. And, and, and so the idea is from Hebrews, from the gospel, that God's son, Jesus, he made a way for you and I to actually go in. And the image he's using is the tabernacle. It's the temple. The same setup, by the way, is going to be in the temple. You're going to go into the most holy place from the holy place from the outside. This one-way entrance all the way through. And from this holy place to get into the veil, nobody gets to go except the high priest, one person, once a year. And all of a sudden, the Hebrews writer is saying, we have confidence to enter this holy place, the most holy place. By what? Well, the blood of Jesus, the new and living way he opened for us through his flesh. Well, now I'm really interesting. What, what? had somebody ask me not too long ago, they may even be listening today, they're overseas, to say, hey, well, you talk about, I mean, is communion cannibalism? You got to take in the flesh of Jesus? What's the way? So back up with me, we read it earlier, when, when Jesus is on the cross and he dies, he says it is finished and he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, it said, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. I wish I was there to hear the ripping sound. The veil, right? This heavy veil that separates out the holy place from the most holy place to keep people out from the presence of God because you're not able to be in that holy presence. It ripped from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, tombs were open. The bodies of saints who'd raised were falling asleep were raised and they're walking around testifying to being a lot. It's incredible, right? The most incredible statement is that first one. 
I mean, earthquakes and, sh- and rocks splitting and tombs opening and resurrection happening. But the most important thing is the first thing they say, and all three gospel writers say it. The veil is torn from top to bottom. The separation from God to man is over. That's the way Jesus made, right? That's the blood of Jesus. That's what's going on. It's, it's, it's our faith that this holy room, this incredible closeness with God that nobody got to go into, the writer of Hebrews says we have confidence. That's like, yeah, I can do it. To go in, boldness. The death of Christ did it. The sacrifice once and all for us did it. The confidence I have of being holy enough to stand before God is not whether I've been doing right things, not whether I've sinned today, not, not if I, I, I have made atonement for the stupid sins that I've done this week. That's not the ticket. This is the confidence. It's amazing. I, I want to look at just one more piece this morning because there's this coverings separating out the small center of an Israelite camp to a tent. The tent has a special room in it. The room has a veil so no one can get in. And we see how that's just amazingly looking at Jesus. But there's one more piece to talk about this morning and that's, that's this altar. So I, I, w- I want to look at it with you too and, and then we'll be done the altar that's chapter 27 and he says this you shall make an altar this is again god speaking to moses moses writing it down us reading what moses has written down you god speaking shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long five cubits broad that's seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet the altar shall be square its height shall be three cubits that's about four and a half feet it's a it's basically just a a, a kind of a a square pit Right, it's hollow. And he says this, he says, uh, you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. See, it's outside the tabernacle. Now we're talking about something that is in the courtyard before you come into the tabernacle. So bronze is its main thing that is used. And says, you shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all of its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on that net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze, and the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on two sides of the altar when it's carried. They'd have to move it around, you see. You shall make it hollow with boards. As has been shown to you on the mountain... So it shall be made. So again, we're looking at patterns. So we've got being very specific. This is exactly what I want you to do. I exactly wanted you to do an ark this way. Look who it represents, Jesus. I want you to do a mercy seat on top of it. Who does it represent? The propitiation of Jesus. I want you to make a table with the bread of the presence. What does it represent? Jesus. I want you to make a lampstand with light that's going to go out. What does it represent? Jesus. I want you to make an altar outside. What do you think it's going to represent? But this is what they're going to do, right? It says, make it according to the pattern exactly that God has for, for us to make, he says to, to Moses. These animals, you know what's going to happen, right? This is the altar where if you came in as a person, not as a priest, and you wanted to talk to God or you had something to do, you did it there. 
You did your sin offering, your burnt offering, your fellowship offering, your guilt offering. The, the, the offerings that you had, you did there. You took your animal in and you killed your animal there. They would take the blood from there, sprinkle it where they need to sprinkle it on you, but then they would take it and sprinkle it there at the, at the tabernacle. If the priest was going to go in, he would make the sacrifice there and take the blood and then sprinkle himself and go and sprinkle the table and sprinkle the, the lamp, sprinkle the thing so he could go in that once a year. This, this, is, a, this is the altar. You shall make the court of the tabernacle, south side of the court, you shall have hangings of fine wood and those things. So he's going to go in and talk some about, about the court itself. So just the court they're going to lay out, it's going to be 75 feet by 150 feet. But, but, the, but the altar, according to this pattern, I want to talk to you a minute about that more. Again, we have the semblance of these things. You may have heard this before. And maybe something you kind of know, yeah, but veil tore, so I get to go. Do you understand the depth of the wonder of what this actually is? The depth and the, 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 the wonder of what's actually being portrayed here. Because here, where the altars, we'll talk more about offerings in, in, in another day. But where the actual offering happens, where the animal was killed, where his blood was taken, that's like, to us, that's like, Horrible. And they did it over and over. If you want an offering to God, it takes blood. And so they would kill these animals, burn them. And, and they would take the blood to be used for, for, for the different parts of the offering and sacrifice. And you're like, what, why would God even have that done? Well, this is why. It's, it's, it's because of stuff like this. In Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, where'd they get those ashes? From the altar. Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's <laughs> right. They're, they're talking about how to get holy enough to actually be in the presence of God. How to actually get to where you'd be like, I, I'm okay to stand in the presence of God. Well, you would do your offering. <laughs> how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Don't miss this. Jesus came a once and for all sacrifice, Hebrews is going to say, right? And, 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 and so what is represented by the altar? It's the place where Jesus will die. It's the closest thing we have to the cross. I found the cross. That's where the Son of God willingly died for me. What's the effect of that with his blood shed for me? What's the effect of that with God dying for me? The effect of that is that I made something. I made what? Holy. My conscience is purified. You say, but, but, but what does that mean? It, it means that, that I can list for you, can't you? Come on, think for a minute with me. If you can, think of your life, not mine. Think of yours. I'll think of mine, and I'll think of all the things I've ever done that are bad. Think of the bad things for a minute. Think of the things you really shouldn't have done. Yeah, if you're older, you might have a longer list. And, and think about how in the world are you going to say to me today, man, I, I know I'm forgiven 
And you kind of say, yeah, I kind of, but, but really, well, people, I'm, I'm forgiven as, as long as I've made restitution for those things and I don't do them anymore and, and I make sure that I'm working on not doing, so I'm trying to have a good conscience and make the right choices to, to have good decisions. You, you, you're missing the Christian idea of conscience. It's not the little guy on your shoulder, right? That guy's telling me evil things. He must be the devil. That guy's telling me good things. He must be my angel. Listen to the angel. That's your good conscience. No, the problem is your conscience is already condemning you because you know that you haven't done enough good things. You haven't done everything perfect. How in the world do I get out of that? The psychology of today says the way you get out of that is you tell a good story to yourself and you try hard not to do the bad thing again. What does God say? God says, there's an altar over here. Jesus Christ died on it. And his blood makes you clean. End of story. It's not you doing better again. It's not you promising to not do stuff again. It's not you sort of trying to listen harder to the angel and not to the devil that's on your shoulder. It's not you trying to like choose the good things so you can have a good conscience. No, my conscience is clean because I trust and I know and you know too that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. That's all sin you've ever done, all sin you're doing now, all sin you're ever gonna do. That's not a license to say, let's go sin. I hate sin. But can you ever not believe that Jesus Christ has paid it all for you? And by that paying all for you, that's the way, Hebrews says, you get to say, hey, I'm good for service for God. Because otherwise, you're not. That's the statement, right? I'm just, I'm just talking to you about verse 14. That purifies our conscience from dead works. Yeah, my works are dead. All the works I do, the good ones and the bad ones, the ones I think are good and the ones I think are bad. Anytime that I'm doing it, I can't get away from something. What? I'm doing them for me. I want to do stuff so you like me. I want to do stuff so you know. I want to do stuff so you actually like think well of me. Uh, you can think well of God too. What's the way out of that? All of a sudden, if I look, wait a minute. I'm already entirely accepted in the beloved. All the goodness, all the merit, all the awesomeness, all whatever good stuff I, I have in Christ already. I'm so set. There's nothing else I need to do for service for God. I'm loved entirely. But that, that's what this is. Our dead works aren't just our bad things. It's also the good things that we do because we can't get away from ourselves, our own actions at all. Instead, we have this once and for all sacrifice of, of, of one we did nothing for. We are enemies loved by God so much that he sacrificed himself for us and our consciences are cleansed by this incredible truth that he's done it all for us. There's nothing we can do. No merit, no earning, no special handshake, nothing like that. This is the wonder of the tabernacle because it sets up how they did it. And so what's being said reflects when you see Christ in this and Christ in this and Christ in this and Christ in that you realize the whole thing is about somebody else. It's not about me. It's never been about me. Him for us entirely, that what God has done in Christ, 100%. And, and so I just I want to say one more word here because it's important. This is the ground by which we stand before God as the finished work of Christ. And man, you better say amen. You're not a Christian. 
This is the only hope I have to be in the presence of God is what Christ has done for me. Not anything I've ever done or not done. I don't care if you've murdered someone. I care. Don't, don't get me wrong. But in a very real sense, it doesn't matter, right? Before God, the only thing that really matters is have I received the forgiveness of Christ? Do I believe that he died for me? And have I, do I see the wonder of that? You say, I, I do, I do, I do. How does that free me, Dax, to serve the living God? Do, do, do you see how that's going to change everything? Because one of the deepest motivations I have is to get something from God. I want God to be happy with me. So it flavors this idea as I serve my neighbor, as I do things. But, but, and I'm not then free. Uh, this idea. So, so, but if I believe that, if I suddenly do believe that I live in this incredible idea that God is for me, that he has saved me, that I'm 100% free, that he's done it already. I'm sitting free on my couch. I don't have to get up and do a thing to be in the presence of God, the holy God, because of the blood of Jesus. Even though I know, I know, I 100% know and agree with you. I am not holy in myself. And even if I worked all day, every day, all day, every day, laboring for God, I would still not be holy enough. There's no holiness by degree. The location of Jesus in me means I'm holy. That's what I mean. And so therefore I'm free. Why? Because anywhere I go, God can use me. Anything I do, God can use me. I know that. Why? Because he's in charge. I'm free from this idea that, boy, I better do things right or God won't be using me. There's some umbrella. If I get out of that, then God's not using me. He's using me wherever I go. Do you want to give? Just because God has made you holy in Christ, give. Do you want to love? Do you know God has loved you more than you can ever imagine? Oh, that you would respond with, with, oh, what I want to do is love somebody. It's fun. You should do it. Do you want to be free? Do you know how free it is to know that God has actually paid for everything for you? He's given you, you know, it's not the Disneyland thing that it used to be when I was growing up. When I was growing up, there was the tickets, right? You want to go on a certain ride, you pay the more money for the E ticket. But for the little thing, you could use the B ticket. Now they do it the right way. You just charge one fee, and in you go. Do you know what the fee is? Jesus. And you got all the rides. You say, well, I like Pirates of the Caribbean. Awesome. I like the, 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 the Star Wars one. I don't know the name. Great. All these ways that you can now be used by God because you're free, because you're actually free to be in his presence. He's in you because of Christ. This is Christ in us, the hope of glory that Colossians talks about, 127. And, and then this idea that God's actually for you forever. I never want to hear you say that you aren't blessed. You are so blessed. God died for you. I never want to hear you say that, that, that you're too bad to be before God. That's not the basis by which you're before God. I never want to hear you say that you're nothing. Are you kidding? God died for you. You are an amazingly loved and cared for and privileged. You can go right into the presence of God in prayer, absolutely, but also in holiness. And that's the picture for today to end with. This idea, God has come. But he came first thousands of years before and he made sure you saw the depth of what it means to be close to him. It is not a small thing. 
It is the thing. And with Jesus Christ, who is the mercy seat, who tears the veil, who is the bread of life, who is the light of the world, who has died on the altar, he's made a way for you and I to stand with confidence before a holy God. Oh, rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the amazement of this text and the depth of it and the wonder. Father, forgive me. I, I get bored with all the numbers and I don't even know what acacia wood really is. But Lord, I, I, I see the depth of the holiness and separation and planning that you went to with these things. And my heart rejoices that we get to be holy in your son. Father, I pray for all who are gathered here that we might deeply understand and rejoice that you died for us and cared for us and love us and have made us, brought us into your presence. We who were so far out, not even in Israel. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Lord, help us to respond in ways your spirit prompts to bear real good works, Lord, because you're doing them in our lives today. In your name.